I just wanted to introduce myself. My name is Matt Riedel. I'm one of the orthopedic trauma surgeons at Yale University, I'm helping to chair this course and lead the discussion on geriatric pertrochanteric hip fractures. Um, this will be the AO North America Trauma Journal Club on that topic. I'll introduce my co-moderators, uh, Luke Marchand, Neil Sardesai, and Derek Stenquist. And the authors we have with us today are Stephen Shannon, Henry Goodnow, and Dr. Bendari. So welcome. We're here with Dr. Steve Shannon, who is uh, the lead author on the study Short versus Long Cephalomedullary Nails for Pertrochanteric Hip Fractures, a randomized prospective study. It won the Beauville Award in 2018 and was published in uh, the Journal of Orthopedic Trauma. And uh, Dr. Shannon, thank you so much for joining us for this. Uh, we really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule uh, to talk about your paper. Well, I appreciate uh, you guys uh, selecting the paper, yourself and Dr. Riedel, Dr. Marshan, and the rest of the panel. Yeah, it's a great paper, and we it's you know it's great to get to talk to you about it. Um, so to start out, would you mind, could you briefly summarize your study design and, and what you found? Yeah, absolutely. So this was a, a randomized control trial um, that was conducted from December of 2014 to uh, December of 2017 with the main purpose of comparing short and long nails. Uh, with the main goal of looking at functional outcome scores, so SF36, Harris hip, looking at implant-related complications, and then also perioperative uh, complications. So we ended up, um, and we also didn't want to exclude um, any unstable uh, pertrochanteric uh, fractures. Um, the only people that we really excluded were essentially um, under the age 18, dementia, limiting their ability to engage in the functional outcome scores or, you know, any pathologic fractures. So we uh, assessed 262 people for eligibility. The study was powered um, for functional outcomes, you know, to be reasonable and, you know, look at actually the feasibility of getting it done. And so we randomized uh, 220 people. We wanted to uh, a lot for possible fallout. And uh, we did have um, some loss to follow up, but ultimately we ended up having um, 80 um, in the short nail group and 88 in the uh, long nail group. Um, the overall uh, demographics were similar, which wasn't surprising based on the population. Uh, the fantastic thing, about one of the one of the fantastic things about the study is that the majority of the fractures were actually unstable per the you know, AOOTA classification, um, which is was a first because the previous studies that had looked at these retrospectively were biased with long nails towards unstable, short nails towards stable. And then in regards to uh, results, uh, we saw that the short nails had shorter operative times, which I think the majority of people um, wouldn't be surprised about. Um, blood loss was a little bit lower. Obviously, there's discrepancy with that, very subjective. Um, hospital length of stay, which we couldn't really explain, and maybe we could talk about that later, um, was actually statistically significantly shorter, which was interesting and kind of an unexpected finding. Otherwise, in regards to operative details, tipped apex, uh, the number of cases that had traumatologists involved, and then our subtrochanteric fractional line extension were no different. Um, in regards to the subtrochanteric fracture line extension, um, we had a three centimeter uh, limit that we had established, and the majority of these actually were over two centimeters, and we saw no difference in failure rates, so something we can talk about later. 
And then in regards to the functional outcome scores, we saw you know, no difference really between the population. The Harris HIP score had a statistically significant difference, but not clinically important difference. Um, let's see. And then in regards to complications, we had no difference in complications. The main one that I think a lot of, you know, most people would be interested in would be the peri-implant fractures, uh, which we'll touch base on, um, which we had two in each group. And in regards to the short nails, those were both treated non-operatively. In regards to the long nail, those were both treated operatively because they had intraarticular um, extension um, into the um, uh, distal femur. Um, but other than that, you know, we were really happy with uh, the fact that we were able to actually get the study done in a reasonable amount of time, decent follow-up, and, you know, kind of let you shoot away questions from there. Oh, I lost you, bud. Yeah, I'm here. Sorry. Okay, gotcha. That, but that was great. Thank you for that summary. Um, you know, I think, like you said, the the real take-homes were that uh, there was no difference um, in functional outcomes and no difference in complications, and it was powered for functional outcomes. So were you a resident when the study was done? And, and can you tell us just to back up a little bit about, you know, what was what was the inspiration for the study and what what motivated you guys to design it? So, yes, I was a I was an intern, actually, when I approached uh, my attendings, uh, Dr. Sims and Dr. Cross at the time, Dr. Cass. Um, I was talking with one of my uh, senior residents because I had some ideas for some randomized control trials, and I was kind of throwing some ideas out there. It's, uh, I give him credit because he was kind of my muse, uh, Dr. Matt Hodak, who's an orthopedic oncology that now at Mayo. And, you know, he had expressed like, hey, you know, the, I think the trauma guys would be interested in your idea of, you know, short versus long. You know, they've been talking about possibly doing that. And I was like, all right, I'll run with that one. And so, you know, I did the literature review, I put everything together, put the RV protocol together, kind of just went to him and be like, hey, this is my idea. And uh, for anybody that knows uh, Andy Sims, um, he's very, very chill, very mellow guy, very supportive. And he's all right, let's, you know, let's do it. And so, you know, it was nice to be able to actually start this study um, essentially as like an intern and then see it to fruition and, get it you know accepted for publication get the study done before even graduate you know essentially by chief year and then being able to present it um, at the ota for the uh, uh bobo award when i was a fellow so you know it was uh it was a very fortunate experience that we we're able to i was able to kind of i guess pull that off in that time frame um and when i had the support of a great institution we had a patient population in uh, minnesota you know we obviously you know this it wasn't shock trauma and it wasn't that kind of study, but you know the amount of hip fractures that we we got there, you know, we had we had a ton, and so it was it was feasible. That's awesome. Can you? I mean, really great that you could design that as a resident, you know, and get it done, and and really contribute something awesome to the literature and to all of us who are trying to fix hip fractures and help advance the field. Can you talk a little bit more about that feasibility piece? You know. Um, why did you guys power it for functional outcomes and, and what were your your motivations around that as opposed to, you know, complications or cutout or some of the other things that you looked at? So if you're looking at um, the complications, the amount of patients that you would have to to power, I mean, we would be looking in the thousands. And so, you know, you have to, you know, the nice thing is that this wasn't necessarily like a costly study. Um, it wasn't like we were having to 
pay for new implants or some experimental design or experimental implants. So, you know, from a cost perspective, it was feasible, but we also had to look at time, like reasonable time to get this, this done in. And, you know, a lot of the, the total joint literature, as you know, you know, Mayo is kind of a total joint uh, mecca, you know, the scores around like SF36 and Harris hip, and even in the trauma literature in regards to SF36, there are reasonable studies that had, you know, been powered in the past looking at these. And it was something where we could actually, you know, power for something possibly significant, you know, because we were wondering about like anterior thigh pain, like maybe, you know, it's one of, you know, one of uh, Andy Sims, for example, he was concerned that, you know, maybe short nails have more anterior thigh pain than long nails that would definitely inhibit your SF36 or your Harris hip. Um, so, you know, let's kind of, you know, run with that and be feasible to actually get the numbers and get the study done. Because if you want to look at peri-implant complications, like, you know, peri-implant fracture, I mean, you're looking at thousands and, that, and that's where the money would come in because then you'd have to look at multiple centers, getting the funding for all those centers, getting the funding for all the research assistants, the statisticians, et cetera. Um, so I think, you know, this was by far the most feasible way for us to get this done in a reasonable amount of time. Absolutely. And it's a fantastic study. And as it was, it took you, like you said, three years to get the numbers, right? So to power it for those other outcomes would have been potentially really oh, difficult. Yeah. yeah, it would still be going. Right. And we've seen some of those studies, you know, the registry studies that have looked at those kinds of things. But like you said, they have thousands and thousands of patients that have looked at peri-implant fractures. And so, definitely biased towards, you know, more stable and short, more unstable and long. So Right. Exactly. And, th and that's what, so that, that brings us to an important strength of the study. Can you highlight that a little bit more about wh why you think that's so important? Oh, in regards to the... Uh... Yeah, because this was the first, you know, this was really the first randomized prospective trial on this topic, I believe. And yeah, so it, it, was the, it was the first uh, randomized for short versus long. The actual first, like, randomized uh, trial um, for, you know, short nail, I mean, it was the only gamma available at that time. It was like the 1988, the first gen, uh, was Radford et al. back in like 1993, where he compared... Um, the gamma nail versus like DHS. And that one, they had a lot of, you know, for the study numbers, I think they had like 200 patients and there was 11 uh, peri-implant fractures in the gamma cohort. So it was like, that was scary. So a lot of people, you know, a lot of the, you know, the, you think about the attendings, you know, you're an attending now, but you think about our attendings and some of the older ones and they get scarred, right? Cause they, you know, from their attendings and their experiences and the horror stories, and then they scar the residents and then the residents become attendant and they scar their residents. And so, you know, you get that little bit of this vicious cycle, but that study was kind of a, a big problem because it said, Hey, you know, we got this big issue and, but that was the first generation. So, I mean, we're looking at stainless steel, we're looking at a straight nail. So, you know, you'd get this, the etiology that we thought, you know, that we're kind of reviewing back on that is that, you know, your hammer seeing an implant in that has a mismatch of the nail design and the femur. And so even in the anterior femur, you know, you're kind of perching on the anterior cortex and it's not flexible. It's not titanium. It's not flexible at all. And so you get that stress riser and you're, a lot of these, they thought were peri-implant fractures at the time of insertion. And, you know, there's this consistent mismatch between the shape of the nail and the shape of the femur, um, specifically in that sagittal plane. Um, but then, you know, you, you look at some of the, the later kind of study and the uh, the later uh, data. And, you know, I think, I think Dr. Bandari is one of the other 
um, panelists that's being interviewed, he had a great meta-analysis. And honestly, when I looked at this, his meta-analysis, I think it was from like 1991 to 2005. Um, they looked at the first generation, second generation, third generation gamma nails. I think um, George Hadakavich was also on the paper. And, you know, they really kind of pointed out um, the earlier design, how there was a mismatch, it was more stiff, and that the gamma nail really improved over the generations, and that there was not a significant increase in fracture risk. And I, you, you really think that a huge meta-analysis like this would answer the question? I mean, it really should have. And, you know, it's 2009. It didn't. It was like people needed like an RCT, you know, even if it's a small one, they need an RCT to be like, hey, yep, this is, a, and which is a little, you know, it's a, it's no, a little crazy that you need a 220 person RCT against a, you know, 25 RCT meta-analysis from, you know, Mo Bandari to say, oh yeah, short shorts are okay. Well, but, but you know, the big thing, you know, and that's, and that's from a, yeah, you know the, that perspective, but and that's not really. I think Andy Sem said, you know, said it as well. Like that's not really kind of like the big important thing that we feel like our paper showed. But we'll we'll get to that. Yeah. Well, I was gonna say, you know, when you said um, that thing about being scarred and your and sort of the folklore or whatever your attendings had passed on, you know, I was gonna say this is what your paper was really incredibly useful for, right? I mean, they, they were, this is what papers like this bring to the literature too. Is it? make helps people get beyond those things and say no we, you know we have evidence and people have confidence in it because it is prospective and it is randomized even though but it's important also right and this is part of the discussion we're having that to remember that it wasn't powered for for peri-implant fractures correct so you know even though people take confidence in 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 it for that it's important to 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 note that right that it was yeah prior to the, yeah the, and the, also it's the, important okay. to note that you know, those were only two nail designs in our study. I mean, it was 50-50 striker gamma and TFNA, you know, Cynthia's TFNA, and we didn't use a blade. The, it was screws, lag screws in both groups. So looking at that, but it was only two of those, and that was mainly because the contract, you know, hospital contracting. And it happened to work out perfectly that there was no difference. It was pretty much 50-50. Um, and because I did a subgroup analysis on that to make sure that the data was clean. Um, but that's just those two nails. Now, I can't comment on the risk of peri-implant fracture um, in other nail designs that might, you know, I don't want to, I'm not going to say names, but might have a, uh, you know, you're trying to put a trapezoid in a circle. It might not, might not be a great idea. And uh, I'll be interested to to see the dynamics of the uh, uh, panel with uh, Dr. Mark Shannon and Dr. Dr. Riedel, um, where we had seen some trapezoid uh, proximal body style short nails that when we were fellows at shock and saw some peri-implant fractures that were definitely operative. And they're like, oh, we got another Shannon fracture. <laughs> you got another Shannon fracture coming in. Steve, there you go. Look, you, fracture. You got a fracture like, named after you. Yeah, I know. Like guys, that we did not use those nails in our <laughs> study. Okay, I just want to be very clear on that. So, well, no, this. So you alluded to it a little bit, but let's. Um, I, I would love to hear you. We're lucky to have you as the lead author here, and it's even it's really cool. Like you said, that you even designed the study, conceived of it, and designed it as an intern. 
and you had great support from your mentors. Um, so in your opinion, now that you're attending, you know, what is the real take home from this article and how did it change your practice, if at all? So the nice thing is that I didn't, I didn't have to change my practice because I wasn't making the decision. <laughs> right. But maybe how, how do you think? I'd it integrate, yeah, I would practice? say integrate into my active practice. Yeah. Right. Right. So I think the big thing for me, um, and, you know, maybe I made the jump of the gun on the important point of the study, I think is the. That's okay. We're, 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 we have a good time. Push so the time limit. Yeah. We can get there. Yeah. We can get yeah. there. I think the most important thing that we kind of found was that you can do those fracture lines that extend three centimeter up to three centimeters and maybe even more up to three centimeters of, you know, from the tip of a lesser. And, you know, that was something where no one really kind of knew before on what would be safe. I mean, we you hear arguments about it all the time. You're like, oh no, it's too close. Or, but at least we had some number where we could say, hey, in our short nails, you can do this. And I think that kind of, you know, freed up um, a lot of possibility and decision-making on, hey, yep, in this fracture pattern, I can get, I, you know, I don't wanna say get away with, but I can, you know, give this patient um, shorter operative time, you know, likely less blood loss, you know, up to this, you know, amount of centimeter distal extension. And, you know, in my practice, I'd say if I always look at the, you know, the patient and be like, all right, you know, is this something where we can do a short nail? You know, for me, and, you know, I, I typically use a, you know, HANA bed fracture table equivalent. Um, I think every place has fracture tables that are missing parts. So I think everybody's gone to a HANA bed if possible. Um, but, you know, you, you get that lined up, you get the reduction, nice. And you do the short nail, takes about 20, 25 minutes. Um, you don't have to, you know, work on getting this, you know, distal perfect circles um, with a traveling x-ray tech that's never done perfect circles before. And that's wasting time and adding time to the case, adding anesthesia time. So I think that it frees people up to in these situations to know and be confident that, you know, when you have that up to distal three centimeter extension for the tip of the lesser, you can safely do a short nail and not do your patient a disservice, as long as you get a good reduction and a good tip tape X distance. Yeah, and, and it's a good, that's a good point because you you guys did look at that and all that, almost all of them were acceptable in terms of tip apex distance. And the ones that, that did fail, uh, did not have a good tip apex distance. You were not, that's a small subgroup. It was not powerful. Which is actually, it was cool to see that because yeah. you think about, you know, I, I saw that. going back in the day yeah, and that, you know, you're, you probably have a little bit more leeway than what they used, you know, than with the short nail because, you know, your, your implant center is essentially closer to the, you know, axis of the femur. Right. So you probably can, you know, maybe a little bit more than 25, but it was pretty much the same. It right. was cool to see that something from, you know, that far back, you know, still has some uh, relevance today. Because I think it was like the majority of the ones that failed had a tip of existence over 27 or something like that. Yeah. 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 And exactly. then, you know, your, your, the other thing you mentioned about the subtrophic extension, I think it's important to highlight that um, because it was a subgroup analysis, but it was fairly large group. Right. I mean, yeah, were, so it was were like 59 were over two, uh, right. two centimeters, uh, 47 in the short nail group and 52 in the long nail. No difference in failure rate. Which is not something you guys, I mean, Dr. Sems wrote, it was great. And he wrote me an email 
um, about his his experience and some of the things he liked about the paper. And he mentioned that, you know, that 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 was something that you guys incorporated almost luckily, you know, uh, fortunately, because sometimes when you got them on the fracture table, you saw that there was more extension than you thought, but they'd yeah. already randomized. And yeah. so and so that, that led to some people being incorporated into the study with a little bit more subtrophic extension than expected. But yeah, it, it you know, it didn't show it didn't lead to an increased risk of, of failure, at least, you know, in this group. Sometimes so. the surprising things from studies, you know, like that, that aren't intended are sometimes the most useful clinical thing long term. So, like you know, like the sprint trial. Right. Right. So, um, you know, I think one other thing I wanted to ask you was. Do, do you think this study uh, definitively answered the question? Uh, and, or if not, you know, what, what do you think the, the next study would need to do differently or better uh, to, to definitively answer the question? I think this study honestly just reaffirmed uh, Dr. Bandari's and Dr. Hadikavich's huge meta-analysis. I think it just reaffirmed in a small randomized control trial study that implant designs have improved to the point now that there's really no difference between short and long nails when you're treating pertrochanteric tumor fractures. Great. And I, and, you know, you talked about potential benefits of that for, for efficiency, for the patient, for blood loss, for operative time. And these are things that you guys looked at and demonstrated. Um, great. There, you know, there had been a number of studies on short versus long nails prior to this. And I think the most for me, the most important thing about this study was that, uh, number one, obviously it was prospective, it was randomized, um, but it was the, like you talked about earlier, the incorporation of those unstable fracture patterns. Because um, previously, most had, most of the studies had been retrospective studies and this, you guys kind of highlighted that as well, that in your, you, you were able to incorporate and randomize truly unstable, you had the same number of unstable patterns in each group. And there was no right. bias for that, which yeah, is and that was really important for us. Right, right. Um, you know, one last thing I wanted to ask you about. Um, mm -hmm. You guys talked a little bit in the conclusion about um, the the nature of the peri-implant fractures that you saw. Oh yeah. And I, I, you know, I appreciate what you said, which you had two in each group, and the two in the long nail group were both, you know, intraarticular distal femur fract or distal femur fractures with intraarticular extension that needed a plate around the nail. And the two in the short nail group happened to be peri-implant fractures that were successfully treated non-operatively. They were fractures around the nail or with, around the intratrochanteric region with subtroche extension, but they were successfully treated with modified weight bearing. Um, and, and, you know, I think every study, it's good when you suggest something that needs further study. And that's kind of what you guys did. You said, you know, this is maybe this, there's something to this. But would you talk a little bit about that? You know, I mean, you guys weren't powered for peri-implant peri fractures. So how should we interpret those results? So, I, you know, I think anecdotally, um, from, you look at the nail designs. So the gamma three is, you know, no longer, you know, I think gamma four is now, you know, kind of becoming dominant. I think that that has a better radius of curvature than the gamma three. And I think the TFNA probably already had a little bit better radius of curvature um, than prior. So I think the perching um, that you get with the long nails distally, I think that's going to be less of an issue in the future um, because we have better you know, radius curvature. But it still doesn't make up for poor surgical technique on 
you know, too posterior of a start and entry point um, with the nail, you know, so obviously technique, you know, the implant can't save you on everything. So if you're too posterior, you know, you, you, even with a great radius curvature, it's possible that you could perch, you know, anteriorly. Um, I think that, you know, if you're going to look at treating the complications, I would, every day of the week, if I had to um, take out a short nail and exchange it for a long, I would do that in a heartbeat over a, in being in a situation where you've got an intercondyl or distal femur fracture around a long nail, you're having to get an anatomic reduction, play it around that, try to shoot screws through the plate into the nail distally, size the construct because the majority of the time you know you're that issue is going to happen in the first three months typically um that's a you know maybe um other people would like to have that case instead of the short nail conversion to a long uh personally i would not no i think that's a really good point and i've heard that argument before you know whether you're using short nail intermediate nail which is a particular you know manufacturer but or long nails right it's yeah. sort of uh you know where is the fracture going to occur um and even some people have suggested that uh you know in the long nails they're in the metaphyseal region and maybe the bone in the diaphysis is better but i you know i, I don't think which with the way you put it which which uh complications you want to deal with is a good way to think about it so yeah always think about your next case <laughs> right all right well is there anything else that you wanted to tell us about the study or you thought that was important i mean i think that we covered a lot and we really appreciate your time. Yeah, I think that you really kind of touched base on the uh, salient points with, you know, this was just kind of an affirmation of stuff that we already knew, but an RCT pattern. Um, and that, you know, we really can possibly accept up to three centimeters, maybe even a little bit more. Um, and you're, you'll be okay. Awesome. Well, thanks again for your time today. And we, uh, we really appreciate it. I appreciate it as well, Derek. You guys have a good journal club. Okay. Thanks. Yeah, let's make sure we see it. of the AO Trauma uh, Journal Club uh, for this month, we're doing geriatric trochanteric fractures. Uh, I'm Lucas Marchand from the University of Utah, and I'm interviewing today Dr. Henry Goodenough from uh, Stanford University and looking at their 2021 JAOS paper entitled Countersinking the Lag Screw or Blade During Cephalomedullary Nailing of Geriatric Intertrochanteric Femur Fractures, Less Collapse and Implant Prominence Without Increased Cutout Rates. So thanks very much, Dr. Goodenough, for joining us today. Um, we appreciate it. And what's what's kind of a funny side story about this paper is every year I run a, a trauma for the residents at our institution, and I try to pick like 10 good articles that we go over in the course of an hour and a half or two hours. And actually from uh, 2021, I had picked this article mostly because the the title of it and the findings of it had had pinked it peaked an interest of mine. And so it's cool to be interviewing you now for sort of a, a broader audience. Thanks so for having me. 
this was a retrospective review of 175 consecutive patients treated with cephalomedullary nails for intertrochanteric femur fractures with a minimum of three-month follow-up. And then I think you yeah, kind of had a separate cohort that included some of those patients um, that was 200, but added some. So it was a total of 254 patients that had a minimum of six-week follow-up. Uh, all at a single center, obviously, and your primary outcome being cut out at that three-month follow-up with a secondary outcome of shortening at six weeks. Uh, in total, you had 34 patients, and then you divided all of the intertrochanteric femur fracture groups into two cohorts, a group that received a counter sunk lag screw or blade, and then a non-counter sunk lag screw or blade. You had 34 patients in that countersunk group at the three-month time point and 138 patients in the non-countersunk group. And ultimately, you show no difference in the cutout rates or the need for revision surgery between the two groups. Uh, and then you show a little less screw prominence, particularly at that six-week mark where the number is a little bit bigger, less screw prominence in the countersunk group by two to, three, two to three millimeters. Does that all sound accurate? And did I portray the study correctly? Yeah, yeah, you got it, Lucas. Okay, great. So with with sort of that brief overview of mine, there's obviously there's five five or six tables in the paper. There's a lot more information there, but those are sort of the primary findings and mostly what I want to talk about today because that's what you guys were focused on. Can you tell us start us off by just telling us a little bit about the genesis of the study? Yeah, for sure. So we know from previous studies that standard obliquity intertrochanteric femur fractures like compression during weight bearing postoperatively. And so the lag screw of a sliding hip screw, the lag screw of a cephalomedullary nail is designed to facilitate this by allowing that controlled collapse. Um, however, as other studies have shown, excessive collapse, so excessive sliding of the uh, along the screw and um, uh, collapse of the femoral neck or the intertrochanteric uh, proximal femur can cause problems for the patient, namely uh, impaired gait biomechanics. So we think that's from lack of offset uh, and also lateral implant prominence. So the IT band gets irritated by a prominent uh, implant. And so some surgeons, uh, particularly some surgeons at our institution had taken to countersinking the screw beneath the lateral cortex of the proximal femur to attempt to mitigate the sliding, to minimize those two, the, the lateral implant prominence and the, um, in, the lack of offset, the loss of offset rather. Uh, other surgeons uh, feel that this will impair control collapse and with no place else to go, the screw is actually at increased risk of cutout, um, either intraarticularly or superiorly. And so it turns out that there um, are strong feelings on either side of this, which to do, but little evidence either way. And so we saw an opportunity, therefore, to, to um, look at our patients and, and try to test these hypotheses with, the, with our hypothesis being essentially that countersinking the screw will not increase the risk of cutout and uh, will potentially uh, uh, result in less sliding and, and maybe less lateral implant prominence and, and offset. Yeah, and I, I kind of actually pointed that out when I was making notes on this paper that I thought it was a little, it was interesting that you guys hypothesized that it would lead to less or equivalent cutout rates, but may mitigate some of the collapse and lateral hardware prominence because it is a little counterintuitive to what 
is typically taught, right? Or at least was taught throughout my residency and fellowship that you want to allow these fractures to collapse. And that this was always a, a point of emphasis in the OR by my mentors, which is why I think I found this study so interesting from the onset way back in 2021 when it came out was getting that the view that basically perfectly parallels the angle at which the implant has been inserted so you can see whether or not your lag screw um, has sunk deep to or remains just prominent to the lateral cortex. Yeah, and I think it is interesting how, um, to your point, how widely that seems to be taught and at least to um, my research and background, just you know, no evidence really to to guide either way. And so I'm not sure if you found anything different in your in your in your studies. Yeah, there's that there is a citation that you guys actually have in your paper that shows locking the implants leads to increased cutout rate, but you guys clearly didn't do that here and, and you make very specific note of that in the methods section that the set screw was set but then loosened to allow for rotational control but but collapse along the uh, head neck segment. So was this something that like one or two surgeons were doing this this idea of countersinking the screw or was it just one surgeon? Um, how did this come about at your center? I'm sort of fascinated by this story. Yeah, so so maybe um, not unique to our institution, you know, um, if you have some individuals that countersink and some that don't, you and and you kind of have a division of party lines. We have a, a couple of surgeons here that tend to uh, countersink the implant, and then uh, and then several other surgeons who don't. So, and you know, I think debate and uh, discussion on both sides of that, both kind of like formally and informally. So, so it is what you said. It's basically a difference of opinion, and we just yeah. wanted to see if there was any evidence either way. In the surgeons that are countersinking the lag screw, you had mentioned like, I want to try to be clear in the language because I think lateral prominent lateral prominence of the hardware to me is is a different problem than collapse. Were they trying to both decrease lateral prominence, which by countersinking the screw, the screw has to just move further to become prominent and bothersome to the patient. Like, I understand their desire to do that. Were they actually also trying to decrease the amount of collapse in an effort to mitigate the lost offset and the potential impact it may have on hip biomechanics? Yeah, so those are the two things that, uh, at least the way that I was was trained in the rationale behind countersinking, you're trying to do both of those things if possible. Yeah, and I think you guys allude to it in the paper, like, the reason why countersinking that screw, because you would you can imagine from the outsider standpoint, it's like, well, if you don't want the uh, fracture to shorten, just lock the set screw all the way down. But the idea, I presume, and that what I'm trying to clearly tease out from you here is, the people that had this idea, their thought was, well, if I countersink the screw, but then I still allow for collapse by loosening the set screw, perhaps the interference that the lag screw experiences with that lateral cortex may uh, lessen or more further control the amount of collapse without completely preventing it. it, it is, am I right in that line of rationale or is that an inappropriate way of thinking about it? 
No, I think you hit the nail on the head. And I do, and you said it now a couple of times, but I want to distinguish, you know, we still believe that these fractures like compression and control collapse. And so I'm not in the camp of advocating for, uh, and, and this is not tested in this study, but, um, you know, locking the set screw or compressing and then locking the set screw. These are all separate things. Um, um, and so certainly locking the set screw without facilitating any control collapse, uh, I think would be, um, you know, I don't think that's what the evidence shows that standard of liquidity intertrokes want. Yeah, that would be misguided. And that, I think it would be misguided. And so that's why, yeah, I just wanted to tease that out for everybody because it, as I read the paper, I kept thinking to myself, like, these are two separate issues, lateral prominent, lateral uh, hardware prominence and shortening of the head neck segment. While they happen simultaneously, they are two separate problems that are being addressed and potentially mitigated by um, what you guys are suggesting in this paper. So has this study changed practice for you and others at your center? So yeah, Lucas, it has for me. So I, uh, if it's a standard liquidity intertrochanteric femur fracture, and I'm treating it uh, after reduction with, with the cephalomedular medullary nail, I'll plan to countersink the lag screw. And I, so I do do that. Um, and, and it stems from this study and, uh, you know, acknowledging that this is limited retrospective evidence, but it's evidence nonetheless. And the goal to minimize loss of offset, to minimize lateral implant prominence down the road for the patients. And then, Two sort of follow-up questions for you there. Um, tell us a little bit about countersinking the screw. Just give us a little bit, maybe a technical tip on how you do that, how much you countersink it, how you verify it's countersunk um, the right amount. And then as you mentioned, this is sort of retrospective data. Any desire by yourself or others in your group to maybe prospectively follow these or come back with a secondary study when that number in the countersunk group is larger than, you know, 34? Yeah, so the um, no uh, real technical pearls other than, um, you know, I think it, it counts if, um, you know, you've got the superior and inferior or cranial and caudal uh, cortices. So if you countersink that caudal, you know, the angle of the screw is coming in so that the the screw will will countersink on the lateral cortex caudally before cranially. I think if you just countersink it beneath that caudal cortex, then you're within the spirit of what we're of what we're doing, or at least how we do it. Um, that's the answer to your first question. The answer to your sex, second question is is uh, yeah, it would be nice to prospectively follow these patients, and so I think a prospective cohort would be easy to design and um, it would be good to answer questions of lateral implant prominence for the patient. You, One thing that uh, you didn't mention about the study, we did call these patients, but just like every other or many other hip fracture studies, we have like a 30% response rate. Uh, so we had a lot of loss to follow up. Um, there's a, obviously a mortality um, uh, component to geriatric proximal femur fractures. And so um, further follow-up with a larger number of patients may allow us to actually answer whether or not we're helping them with lateral implant prominence. Um, now we have some gate mechanics capabilities kind of built into our clinic workflow. And so that could be another 
um, another thing that might be relatively easy for us to answer. And so rather than just the radiographic parameters that we asked about in this study, I think a prospective study would allow us to follow, you know, actual patient patient outcomes. Yeah, I think obviously I would be all for that. I thought the initial iteration of this study was interesting. I would find a follow-up study um, fascinating as well. And as you referenced in your paper, and I think as Labosian et al. showed, you know, it, at least in the femoral neck, which I guess I would assume behaves somewhat similarly in terms of shortening to intertrochanteric femur fractures, as soon as you get approaching or past that centimeter mark, people tend to do poorly. So I'm kind of fascinated and interested by the idea of either new implants that help limit the amount of shortening with potentially not increasing cutout rate or um, or can, or techniques, as you guys described here, to maybe lessen the degree of shortening. I will point out that the amount of collapse difference in your study was two to three millimeters. And that, that to me, would be the, the primary question I'd like to see. As the numbers get bigger, does the difference between the amount of collapse between the um, two groups potentially change, or does it stay in that realm? And if it stayed in that realm, do you imagine that that would be a functional uh, create a functional benefit or difference between the two cohorts? That's a good question. So, as you said, it's statistically significant. It's a small difference. We don't know what the minimally uh, clinically important difference is for uh, lateral implant prominence. You have uh, talked about a threshold of a centimeter. Uh, there's another. There's other studies that talk about five millimeters of collapse as enough to impair gait biomechanics after uh, proximal femur. And so we don't know um, what's significant, but we we're trying to stay below a certain threshold, and we're trying to do everything we can to minimize minimize that prominence. And so hopefully we'll get more clear answers with a larger uh, a larger study, and even just looking at at patient outcomes. Yeah. Well, uh, I think that brings us to the time limit. I wanted to thank you, one, for doing this work, providing some value to the orthopedic community and the trauma community at large, as well as joining me today to answer some of my questions. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks for thanks for having us. Awesome. All right, everybody. My name is Neil Sardesai. Uh, I'm an orthopedic trauma attending here in Southern California at the Kaiser Permanente Medical Group. Um, today with me, this uh, is Dr. Mohit Bandari from Hamilton, Canada, uh, McMaster University, uh, to here to discuss their multicenter trial, uh, the INSIGHT uh, randomized clinical trial looking at intramedullary nailing versus sliding hip screws and trochanteric fracture management. Um, Dr. Bandari, again, thank you again doing this. I really appreciate it. Um, you know, uh, there are a lot of uh, major centers involved in this uh, in this trial. What was your kind of thought process and when you guys were developing this? What was the main kind of um, purpose? Right, right. So, I mean, first of all, uh, great to be on and chat with you, Neil. And obviously, it's always good to chat about uh, trials that we've spent like, well, several years, um, you know, designing and then executing. Uh, this trial is actually pretty interesting for a host of reasons. But first, I, I would tell you that regarding the investigators, you don't pull off larger randomized trials uh, without a real strong collaborative team. So when you look at the writing committee, a lot of those were really key members of the steering committee as well. So you'll notice that 
Um, Emil Shemich was another co-lead with us on this trial, and he's now the chair um, at Western University. And I guess you may know he's also going to be the incoming president of the Orthopedic Trauma Association. Yes. So that's kind of <laughs> kind of nice to know. So he may be chatting more about this area, this issue, or large trials during his tenure. Why did we do the Insight trial? Well, and actually, you know, uh, one thing that was a big challenge for us was, well, you know, like, why are you choosing one particular company's nail? You know, why the Gamma 3? And actually, it went back to a very early, early meta-analysis we had done. Like, gosh, it would have been uh, 2009 or so that we did this meta-analysis. But folks may know that, you know, that the intramedullary nail, especially for, for hip fractures particularly, went on, underwent a number of revisions. And back in the day, there was always this debate around, you know, the sliding hip screw and the nail. And the nail always was, well, the nail has secondary fractures, um, you know, at the tip of, you know, just, just you know, just, uh, you know, around the tip. And that, and that refracture, femoral refracture rate is pretty devastating. And, you know, four or five higher than so there wasn't really a debate when you looked at the early generation we're talking like early 1990s generation nails so we did a meta-analysis around 2009 and this was published in the journal of orthopedic trauma and this led to the insight trial that's when i'm giving this stuff and we probably didn't talk about it in the paper so i figure you'll read the paper and you'll know what's in the paper but this might be insight to why we even did the insight trial <laughs> Yeah. Um, so we had about 25 trials of about 15, 1600 patients. And as you can imagine, when we had hypothesized that the earlier generation cephalomedullary nails, so like the, that earlier generation gamma nail, you know, the gamma nail had a, um, for those who aren't familiar with the history of that particular nail, the first generation 1988 and around, I think it was 1997, and then they had 2006. So we were looking at the 2006 plus nail, which was the gamma three at that time. But we weren't sure if, in fact, there really was, you know, whether design changes had actually led to that big issue, which was decreased femoral fracture rate. So we did that. And as you can imagine, we looked at the early generation 4.5 fold increase in having a secondary femoral fracture. Very clear that the early generation nails were highly problematic on design, but the newer generation nail, there was no significant difference. So that let us say, okay, well, maybe we should be reevaluating this particular device. We obviously had to get funding, so it's very clear uh, within the within the actual um, you know paper that you know Stryker was a, an important funder, which creates a whole host of challenges. Um, industry funded trials are really problematic for a whole bunch of reasons because they create this aura that okay, you know if it's positive, then basically you know this is do we believe the findings? So that led us then ultimately to move to, well, how do we design a trial that's robust? And so, you know, we, we wanted to ensure we had a very strong uh, team. We wanted to make sure we had an independent, um, you know, team of statistics that were working on the on that side of it. We're making sure that, you know, they're going to do the evaluations. We wanted to have a fairly clear um, evaluation of what our primary outcome was. And because the big trade up at that time was, well, we think probably reoperations won't be that different between treatments based on the meta-analyses and based on also newer generation nails versus sliding hip screws. We thought that the advantage probably, if there is one, is going to come under function. So we chose some validated functional scores. And some might say, well, why'd you pick those ones? Well, we took those because we had an international trial. And the truth is you could pick other ones too, Neil, but at the end of the day, you got to pick the ones that people can 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 use all around the world and also that have some basis for being validated. So we went ahead and uh, and use those those particular tools. Now, as you'll read, 
and you'll go through it. Um, you know, you may still have issues with some of the methodology, but the reality is it's it's a fairly standard approach to doing a large clinical trial. Um, you know, that has, you know, a reasonable outcome. We, we were careful on the way we assessed and evaluated outcomes. And at the end of the day, at the end of the day, uh, we found no difference. And this is, I think, where the real value comes in the study. We had built in really early that whether it's positive or negative, the steering committee and the writing committee will be publishing this data. Um, so, you know, if anything, you know, some might say, well, this is just trials industry funded. Right. But it's a negative trial for the most part. Right. It's a negative trial. Um, and so I, I think in many ways um, it, it is in itself a testament to the fact that if you are clear and transparent and set goals up up front, that you can actually demonstrate, you know, um, through you know through what we still believe is a pretty high quality um evaluation now there are going to be some people who are going to say no way um you know nails are better for function and and we showed you know around six months that there's some differences and you know when you look at the nuance data but our primary outcome is that one year really didn't seem to make a difference so the question is you know it's still a dealer's choice some people might say well have you moved the needle any further now i will tell you um and i'll stop here to make sure you can ask some clarifying questions if you have any but you know at a recent Ontario Orthopedic Association meeting, you know, we show the data and we say, okay, folks, so how are you going to change practice? I mean, you know, and the reality is nine out of 10 surgeons are using an intermediary nail device. I mean, so the idea that um, would give it a choice, it doesn't seem to matter. Um, it seems to matter in the fact that at least I can't speak for what's happening on at your institution, but I can tell you that, uh, you know, some version of a gamma nail, you know, whatever product it is, is, is really the, has become sort of of the the standard at least at, at many centers across Ontario, which is our our, our provincial rate. Right? I don't suspect that our findings are any unique in terms of practice patterns elsewhere. So will this actually help move the needle? Well, I guess those who were have always been, you know, sirening that, you know, we can use um a sliding hip screw, certainly can use a sliding hip screw. But it does seem that the majority of practice at least uh, continues to be an intramedular nail practice. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I, you know, I was seeing that on our, at our institution and in, in training centers all around the area. Um, I, I, you know, I think, I think that's a really admirable goal that you guys set out. You know, I think, like you said, when you have industry funded research, the risk is having a white paper that kind of glorifies the use of that product without any yeah. kind of real clinical evaluation and really, you know, clinical critique. Um, and I think, you know, uh, historically, the sliding hip screw has been utilized for these kind of uh, 31A1, A2 trochanteric fractures. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, now with this huge needle shift in terms of training programs, relying more on intramedullary devices to show that they're, you know, there's, you know, people say anecdotally, hey, this is better but you know it's nice to show that hey we have data that you know may say otherwise and you know there may actually be a cost benefit of saying otherwise because you know um it, as we start to this needle shift towards intramedullary devices but you know with their added costs and and oh sure yeah and, and and you know and there's been a lot of work like 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 i'm not sure if, the, if you're going to be also submitting the partnered editorial in jama open by mark swinkowski but mark Swinkowski wrote a, a little editorial to this piece. And basically he was exploring, you know, why? Like, why has there been such a shift? And, you know, some of it's just training, right? Like, like I think our trainees just don't see the sliding hip screw for this indication, like like we used to. I grew up seeing the sliding hip screw for this indication. You know, the nails were, you know, they, they weren't as popular, you know, 25 years ago, but now, 
I mean, I don't like most residents don't really see that. I mean, they see it for for other indications, but then for the for, for these fractures, they're not seeing it as commonly as I would have thought they would have. Just generally, right? So that's that's one of it. And so you, you're going to kind of do what you see. And there's always been this thing around reimbursement, right? Uh, you know, there's been studies done by Forte and other groups, and Mark Spinkowski talks about that a little bit about you know, could there, you know is there a driver? Um, is there are there other drivers that are considered you know that are non non-scientific drivers are just, you know, cost, uh, you know, and, it, and there's reimbursement issues. I don't know, you know, I don't practice in the U.S. In Canada, there is no, there is no cost driver. So the truth is that it's still popular here for a host of reasons. I just think it's just become part of the, you know, uh, you know, uh, part of the educational process. And as people get more comfortable with a particular device, they choose one. Uh, the thing we're, we're saying is it doesn't seem to matter which one you choose. The outcomes are going to be pretty similar. You can argue here and there. Um, and certainly we're talking about, you're right, right, we're talking about the A1, A2 patterns, right? So, you know, we did not include the A3. So anything that would be like a reverse oblique pattern, obviously we didn't, we didn't evaluate and didn't, evaluate and didn't test that. But for, you know, I mean, we, we talk about, you know, the stable and unstable, but, you know, like it's, it, we didn't have a lot of, of, of unstable patterns. Um, but that being said, I think, you know, if we had, if we had had a whole host of unstable patterns, we may find a very different finding, but you're right. At this point, you know, our findings suggest there's no difference. There's no difference. And and the thing I'd say, Neil, too, is that we we, we employed a minimal important difference. So, yeah, there, there is some small difference that you might see, you know, on a year call thing. But we had already set a priority that there's going to be a minimal important difference threshold. And so, again, we employed to the best of our extent validated tools in which we knew that there was a minimal threshold beyond which you have to at least get to be considered patient important. Didn't It didn't hit those thresholds. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, and you know, and, and when you're talking about your inclusion criteria, 31A1, A2, that you know, that A2 um category includes fractures with lateral wall incompetence. And you know, at least um there's some a lot of talk from staff and um I think generally in the community that hey, maybe lateral wall incompetence really should you should know consider using a nail versus a yeah. sliding hip screw and in your study you showed no difference in reoperation rates no difference in union rates yeah. um, and i thought that was really interesting it kind of went across uh, kind of went against what my well, college understanding was no and, and i think the other truth is true right i mean we didn't probably see a lot of those as well yeah i remember right so the challenge with the trial of 800 patients what's well, 400 per group within that 400 you often see a smaller proportion um, you know, of patients, but you're right. For the analysis that we did, we could not find anything. You know, and and the point is, we didn't go looking to find improvements or differences. We just said, okay, you know, here's what we did. Here's the on on block. If you, if you look at this patient population, just for pretty typical patient population that you might see in your own practices, this is how these are likely going to perform. Now, um, one might argue, well, you know, there's all kinds of technical issues and you can argue that too, but I think the nails have been around long enough and the sliding hipster has been long enough that for the most part that, you know, expertise biases probably aren't anywhere near at play as if this was some novel technique that people haven't used. So, you know, we've, we've, we were trying to be aware of that because people are saying, you know, that there might be issues in, you know, uh, those who are really strongly in favor of what you know even for the sliding hips for this you know there were individuals saying you know you have to do it exactly this way we can't you know deviate we have to follow all the rules yeah yeah so we had built all those in to the extent that we could uh, to try to make this as you know at least as generalizable or extremely valid as we could yeah absolutely i mean your results are your results are extraordinary and you know being published in jama and such a recognizable uh, journal and 
um, to be seen world, you know, worldwide, I think is is wonderful and you know such a such a great impact in into the field of orthopedics. Um, the other question I had um, kind of went towards um, your outcomes and results in regards to choosing. You know, you had the EQ five L, uh, you had your hair oh, yeah, scores yeah. and um, yeah. Parker uh, Parker Mobility yeah. scores, and you know there were some. Uh, through my lit review, you know, Parker mobility scores seem to have a really um, kind of generalizable, um, general, uh, how, how do I want to phrase this? I'm sorry. Um, no, no worries. <laughs> in, in regard, I guess, in, in regards to all the different ones, you know, um, had a, sorry it's i like 4 a.m oh no worries no worries i just got home oh, oh, sorry oh my god sorry 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 no you're fine um <laughs> see that's what happens you see you're working too hard neil you're working way too hard um, <laughs> it's the holiday season and there's too many injured people i tell me about it so listen okay so listen i i will tell you that that the reason i mean and there'll be debate around why'd you pick that or you know yeah, exactly. you know, and yeah yeah and the truth of the matter is is that yeah I, but oftentimes, like you know, in our in our silo, sometimes we we design a trial, and then we take it out to surgeons all over the world. You know, we had surgeons in Asia, we had surgeons in the UK who had a huge influence, um, and and they're saying, listen, you know, Martin Parker is a big, very very influential hip fracture surgeon from the UK, and you know, and Tim Cheshire and others had said, you know, we 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 had gone to a lot of people, so it became an issue of moving things around to also be able to do two things. One is to be general generalizable enough that the people also feel that you know there's been input from other members of the committee we didn't just ignore once they were doing it this way but we want to make sure our primary outcome was a strict validated outcome that we could evaluate for quality and also for potential cost utility we thought there might be a difference in advantage and then we we're going to do a cost analysis but remember so why do we choose euroqual because euroqual is a great tool for evaluating cost effectiveness and cost utility our hypothesis was oh we're probably going to show you know a big benefit in function with the nail and then we're going to be able to build out the cost value and say, well, you know, is it cost effective? Well, it didn't turn out that way. There was no difference. So there's no point in doing a cost analysis because it's more expensive and there's no difference. So, you know, it, it doesn't really, doesn't, there's nothing, it's an intuitive answer to that kind of paper. The second reason that we um, also um, got involved in, in doing, you know, in, in choosing some of these other measures was one is, you know, uh, you, you want to have um, in many ways a, a, a good, uh, I guess, uh, you know, a, a good base for for doing this type of work with a group of people and you want to collaborate with them. So, you know, you, you sometimes move things around. So is it the best outcome we could have used? Probably not. Uh, is it the one that we felt we could get everyone's endorsement in? Great. And also, it allowed us also to look at prior studies. Like if you look at Cochrane reviews and a bunch of others, Cochrane mobility scores, some of the other scores were used routinely in those. Yes. So if we wanted to be able to like, you know, evaluate and look at our data in comparison to someone. If we didn't have that score, we wouldn't be able to evaluate. So there was some of those things that were there that were a bit more of the soft decisions while you choose outcomes. Um, but we were pretty clear on our primary, though. That's wonderful. Um, in, uh, in 2023, you know, you have a long history, you know, you have a long yeah. experience with both now. Um, and uh, when you are, you know, with your residents and your fellows, yeah. which way, you know, simple pattern 31A1, uh, so we have yeah yeah like so at 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 what we say at the home of evidence-based medicine or at least we believe so in Canada at McMaster you know we have we have uh, we have we have this at least principle that we want to let you know we want to ask our you know we want to make sure our trainees know both and we want to make sure they know the evidence 
But at the end of the day, I can tell you that if you were to look at 10 types of fracture, exactly this type of fracture pattern included at McMaster University, um, I would say nine out of those 10 are getting an intramedullary device. And that is just what it is, you know. Um, so I, it is interesting to say that, you know, research moves the needle. But I think research, what it does is it helps inform. Um, and in our in our factor, we're, again, cost isn't like there is no reimbursement difference here. Um, it just goes back to the perception, to your point, that if, you know, in the situation um, where there is a bit more, you know, uh, for whatever reason, you know, it's a fracture pattern you think is going to be pretty stable, but you get in there for whatever reason, it looks like it's more the nail is always going to be a little more forgiving than a sliding hip screw, especially for, you know, when there's, when there's a lot of wall defects, et cetera, et cetera. So even though our studies didn't necessarily show it, there's still a perception that, um, you know, the nail is superior overall. Yeah. And so that's, that's the reality for what people are doing. Now, is it evidence-based? Well, I think you can argue at least it's dealer's choice at this point. So, yeah, you're safe choosing either one. Great. Well, that was a great run through of the videos. We've had some fantastic questions coming through the Q&A. I think one discussion that I would like to kick off with, um, <clears throat> I know we've talked about short versus long nails. Now there's an intermediate length nail option, which I know in some of the chat questions I've I've alluded to, but I've gone to using over the short nail, given that it has all the same qualities, use the same jig for the interlock screw, same surgical time, same blood loss, but you get some diaphyseal fit through the isthmus and it decreases the stress riser because it's from the interlock screw to the end of the nail as opposed to the end of the nail being right by the interlock screw. Um, I haven't done a biomechanical study on that yet, but I have one in process. But that's my thought. I'm curious if any of the other panelists or authors uh, have any thoughts on that. Okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, those devices are, uh, let me first back on, you know, short versus long nail, kind of going to Steve's paper. Um, I think, you know, in showing equivalency for treatment of the type of fractures included in that study, uh, you know, I, in answering questions in the chat, I, I, when it comes to reop, when it comes to secondary fractures after fall around a, around an existing implant, for me, I always find it uh, easier to treat a diaphyseal femur than it is to treat a metaphyseal distal femur. Um, and I think, you know, when it comes to choosing implants and whether short or intermediate length, I think it, you know, I, you know, I don't have any literature or evidence and I'm sure it's all parsing out as the, you know, as a, as the utilization of intermediate implant nails increases. But I think you'll, what you'll notice, you've probably noticed a difference in the type of diaphyseal femur fracture, whether it's more transverse or oblique versus spiral, you know, um, with that with that extension. Uh, so, I mean, but for me, when it comes to treatment, I, I always, when it, I always think about secondary injury. So if, you know, these geriatric patients that are having primary falls, you know, there's an increased rate of them having a, another fall, which, you know, then subsequently increases the mortality in the one year period. Um, and for me to get them fixed in a uh, relatively easier fashion, I think I'll find it easier to treat uh, diaphyseal femurs rather than metaphyseal distal femurs. But I'd love to hear what the other guys got to say. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I mean, even if it is a spiral fracture that extends quite distal, um, I'll sometimes, you know, in a 96 year old, if they have a distal third metaphyseal fracture, I'll integrate nail that and put three or four interlocks distally 
in order to protect their neck, right? Because I don't want them to get a femoral neck above a retrograde nail. Um, so that's just another another food for thought. Dr. Shannon actually just popped on here. Steve, we were talking about long versus short nails and, and the implementation of intermediate nails and people's thoughts and opinions on them. I'll throw in my two cents. I'll throw in my two cents while um, Dr. Shannon. So, uh, Dr. Uh, so Matt, in response to your question, I think for me the intermediate nail is um, is intriguing for the proximal toggle problem for certain patterns like the capacious uh, proximal metaphysis, uh, especially in the sagittal plane. But I've kind of seen in my standard liquidity if the geriatric. Uh, well-reduced but very capacious metaphysis proximally. I'm wishing I had an intermediate nail. I'm always using a short nail in that scenario um, because I fall on the short nail side of the fence um, for for inner trokes. Um, but I think that's where my interest and in future involvement in intermediate nails is going to be in kind of trying to identify who's going to have this proximal toggle problem. Yeah, well, we, sh we should talk more about that because that's exactly what I'm going into um, with, with some of my current projects. But that's exactly it, right? Is that proximal toggle. If you get some fit through the isthmus and the diaphysis, I think you get better stability from that windshield wipering of the nail, even with the one interlock. So, And that's what the intermediate gives you, right? Because the interlock's almost in the same place, but it just has longer... It's, it's in the exact same place. It yeah. just comes in obliquely. And then there's about 110 millimeters of nail below that interlock. So quick question for you guys. Sorry, I don't have a matching AO background and underwear. Sorry. Um, but in regards to the nail choices that you guys are selecting um, with the nail toggle, um, which, what are you guys using? I mean, I guess that's my first question. Uh, I mean, TFNA, gamma, what are you guys doing? Gamma, TFNA. I think um, we were talking about too, the diameter of the nail. And if, if how important that is, um, yeah, I think TFNA or gamma. So the, um, so one of my, um, my buddies up in, uh, Sioux Falls, Rob Vandermark, when you guys know him at all, but he, uh, he had a good point in regards to the toggle specifically with the obliquity of that distal interlock, uh, the, you know, the idea of having a screw, especially if you have a capacious canal, um, that's going to be setting you up, yeah, for toggle and falling into varus, versus just having a transverse screw with every other single company, um, besides the TFNA, where you don't have that. What are your thoughts, everybody? I'm intrigued. I'll say I don't use the the TFNA, and I still. Um, I still generate toggle, so uh, I do think that there's some some something to the the ismic, the longer zone of ismic fit in a very capacious possible. Henry, Henry, do you think um, if you had a fixed angle screw, you know, I know all that's the kind of the big thing now, right? These offerings of fixed angle screws, especially the you know the gamma four and all that. Do you think that if it was a fixed angle screw that had no toggle because it was truly fixed angle, do you think that would make a difference versus the standard interlocks that we have right now? Conceptually, 
conceptually, that seems like it could make sense. Yeah, I think my worry would be is, is if it's too stiff at a fixed angle point, like a locking screw, do you generate more periprosthetic fractures? Yeah, I mean, we've definitely seen periprosthetic fractures in similar bone with the locking screws that go through the side plate of the FNS. So it'd be my worry as well. Also think this discussion is wor worthwhile having, but in the end, if you look at the data, if you're worried about the toggle, I, I think a capacious canal that gets zero fit around the nail, we've all seen that patient. It's almost contraindicated to go short nail because I've seen so many failures get sent to me that way. I think that's much more common nowadays than screw cutout with the emphasis on tip apex distance. Just go to a long nail. We also know the peri-implant fracture rate is very low. So all this conjecture about like it's easier to treat a peri-implant fracture in a short or an intermediate length nail most of the cases you're going to be able to do that and that's great but if you can't that rate's low just switch it to a long nail and give yourself more length to get some ismic fit and just some added stability uh, you know along a longer segment so lucas you're seeing like um so you're not seeing cutout because i do all the revisions in this area like conversions for cutouts and I mean, that's the majority of the failures that i see and it can be any doesn't matter what nail it is. Um, but you're seeing good tip tapex distance. And what's your failure mechanism then if you, with a toggle? Varus. The, the distal nail hits the lateral cortex of the proximal femur and the head neck segment falls into varus. And I probably don't see much as many cutouts as you because I don't do conversion arthroplasty surgery. I know because I operate on the same days, the arthroplasty people that we don't see a whole lot of conversions. And I would say monthly, I see a, a varus failure from that lack of fit in the proximal segment. That's why I've pushed very strongly away from short nails when the canal is capacious. And and I've seen a lot get, get sent to me where I, I think I had mentioned in one of the comments, people enter through the fracture site, which induces varus. And then when the helical blade or screw is in the head, that nail will collapse in, in as much valgus as it can, and it'll create a ton of errors. It's really, I mean, that thing just windshield wipes on the distal screw through the proximal femur. It's really incredible. Let me ask you guys this, you know, I think, you know, without, I, I may, let me, I'm an, allow me to disagree a little bit. I, I don't necessarily think the, like the capaciousness of the proximal femur may be the source. And I think a few of us, I think we may have some tertiary referral bias kind of evaluating this because we're all doing revisions for all of these patients. And, you know, uh, what I've, at least what I've noticed, because I've seen the same failure, even with long nails, is it's not necessarily the capacity of the proximal femur, but what I've noticed is failure to achieve a, an appropriate start point. And kind of like alluding to what Matt was saying, you know, a lot of these, uh, you know, 31A1, A2 fractures where that fracture Line, proximal fracture line is exiting right, you know, right at the troke or just medial to the troke. I think what happens is a lot of community-based surgeons may be falling right into that fracture. And that fracture, because the medial side of the fracture line on the superior margin of the neck, you know, is a little bit more robust than it is on the trochanteric side, kind of pushes people's start point or their entry side a little bit more lateral. And I think that engagement is what tips it into varus. I think, you know, tips and tricks to kind of, uh, to kind of get around that, maybe to maybe 
have a little bit more of a medial star point, even if it's just medial to your fracture line. The other trick I've noticed and I learned from Tony Sorkin in Indianapolis was over reaming the proximal entry site. So, you know, most of the proximal opening reamers are 15, 15 and a half millimeters. So what he taught me to do was for these kinds of fractures where the fracture line exits right where your normal trochanteric entry point would be or just trochoformis entry point would be to over ream that site. So that way, when you do have collapse, you're not getting that robust superior cortical bone engagement tipping you into varus. So if you over ream, you go up, you know, from 15, 16, 17, 18, and some I've seen them go up to 20, which really scared me when I was a fellow. Um, but what I noticed was that then you didn't have that tip. So when the nail, when the body, when the proximal body of the nail engaged that proximal femur, you didn't have that no, that slight tip on fluoroscopy. And I think that that it may be more of a start point issue. But I, you know, I know you guys are studying this, and I'll be, I'm, I'm really excited to see what your outcome data is when you guys, you know, have finally, you know, when you publish this information, it'll be really nice to see. But, but Neil, that's, um, that's a start point and a malreduction from time point zero, you know, for me. And the capacious canal is more of a problem where I think people get it perfect and it looks great and they've reestablished neck shaft angle. And then it shows up to clinic six weeks later. And now it's in 10 degrees of varus. I agree that everything you said, that is a more common cause of varus. But for the ones that are perfect that lose reduction, I think it's the ones where people have treated a short, have treated uh, a fracture with a short nail and in a large canal and there's mismatch. I agree. I agree. I've actually, I've gone to, to treating some of these with pure form of start recon nails. If, if they're more subtroke than they are intertroke and I don't need collapse through the femoral neck or the intertroke region, because going to Henry's paper, I'm trying to transition a bit, on those atypical subtrochanteric femur fractures, I will lock the helical blade in the head, and sometimes I'll squirt cement augment so it won't, you know, advance and cut out centrally. But you don't want too much medialization of the shaft on your helical blade for that type of fracture. And I think the TFNs may be the wrong implant, not TFN, syphilomedullary nail is maybe the wrong implant for that type of an injury. Curious thoughts. Yeah, I agree. But yeah, that's a different fracture. If if something doesn't need to shorten along the head neck segment, then it would make sense that you could put an implant up there that doesn't allow shortening that may have other advantages, i.e. more in line with the shaft, a more medialized start point, a lot of these other things. I totally, totally buy it. But just to be clear to the audience, like that is a, a subtroke or even a high subtroke or reverse obliquity. Some of the reverse, what people will call a reverse obliquity intertrochs are different fractures that don't need that collapse. Um, and so it would make sense that alternative implants are advantageous. Absolutely. And that's, I'm just trying to get toward the pertrochanteric nature of the the, the you, talk. You, you mentioned <laughs> yeah, your, um, <laughs> sorry. You mentioned the um, the uh, cement in the, in the head. How many of you are doing that? Not doing it. I only do it on revisions where I need to um, prevent spit out or or um in uh cancer patients that i'm worried about lytic lesions but i'll squirt the i'll squirt dye through it first to ensure it doesn't leak into the joint and if it doesn't then i'll cement augment lucas henry I'm what not, are you guys i'm not uh i'm not augmenting with cement i haven't found a role for it in my practice um, derek you're going to say something but i think uh, i got cut off I was going to say that the one that Matt was talking about, the, the where there's not, it's not an intertroke fracture line. I, I agree with you. Those are the ones I'm locking, but then there are some that have both 
intertrophic component, but also some subtrophic extension. And I was just going to point out that I think those are, we're often using long nails for those, but it's really important to let off the traction and make sure, because even if you've reduced the intertrophic fracture line well, if there's comminution in the subtrophic region as well, and you don't let, let off traction, you know, that, that can be a source of a, a non-union. And, and, you know, in, in, in my fellowship, there was one person arguing um, that all of those should be knocked, locked dynamically. If you've got with a certain implant where you're already compressing the intertrophic fracture line, that you should be locking everything dynamically distally to allow, to prevent a, you know, a non-union in the subtrophic region. And that, that other failure mode that we've all seen where it breaks through the, the, uh, the thinnest part of the nail, that's uh, where the, the cutout is for the cephalomedullary uh, screw. So I just, that's a, it's a slightly different topic, but more to what Matt was talking about with the pertroke. pertroke no, uh, and uh, that's a great point. I think those are the ones that it's most important that your reduction is, your start point is fantastic. Your reduction is good because you need to control collapse in two different planes. And you know, the shaft is going to medialize through the subtroke portion of the pertroke, but you need compression through your inner troke to prevent a non-union. Um, so those are some of the trickier ones. But to the cement point, I mean, I will sometimes use them you know, the ones that are in between a, a basal cervical and then also have some extension up into the head and neck that are in really geriatric patients um, for a little bit of extra fixation or, you know, and sometimes I think of it to prevent rotation. If you're using one like the TFN where there's, it's not a dual screw. Um, if you do get some cement, you know, maybe it, maybe it prevents some of that rotation, but then, um, or in really, really old, old patients, like above 95, there's no evidence for that. Um, but it's interesting because I was just in Switzerland for six weeks and they are augmenting every single intertroke. So there are, there are some people, every they single have one. to pay uh, taxes and tariffs. So they get it for a little yeah. cheaper, but they, but it's, but it's interesting, you know, there, there are people out there doing it. And yeah, well guys, so this has been a really fun discussion. I'm, I want to ask our authors first, if you have any last comments or, or uh, things you'd like to bring up just as we wrap up here. I would just like to pull you guys real quick. Is anybody um, for their short nails? Is anybody putting a uh, hexagon in a in a round hole? My short nails are intermediate. Okay, I guess that company. Yeah, that company doesn't make those. Okay. No. Okay. Uh, no, Steve, I'm 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 still uh, short nail. Uh, I, I'm striker. Round hole. Round hole. Yeah. Is that I mean the um, the only I think you guys were probably I mean if it was in the video, um, the only ones where we saw those really bad periprosthetics and a short nail were the uh, the type of implant where it was a hexagon going into a round hole and Lucas and Matt were both there for all those. I think uh, one last thing I really liked Lucas's point about it's about stability and uh, you know we can talk about peri implant fractures all we want but that that is a very low uh low frequency event and i think the large swedish registry study you know studies have shown that it's going to break wherever you don't protect it and so it's more about you know you'll you choose the complication you want to deal with if you're not going to protect it in a certain place but it's for me it's about like you said it's about stability whether it's toggle or you know the fracture pattern that you need a long nail made made a really good point there fantastic well thanks everybody for your participation i think we had Incredible questions. I hope that all your questions got answered uh, thoroughly. If not, you can reach out to any of us as panelists or authors, um, but we thank you for participating tonight. This is really fun. Mm -hmm.